Well, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles open. There should be one right in front of you if you did not bring your Bible today. It is uh, page 810. That's where we're going to be in the, in the Bible that's in the pew. If you have your Bible, if you could open it up to Matthew chapter 5, we are continuing a sermon series called The King and His Kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount series. And we're in part 12 right now. And I want to, I want to begin by uh, telling you something that happened two days ago for me. I'm getting ready to go on a motorcycle trip down to Virginia. Our church goes and people all over the country join us. Uh, we go every year in May and I'm, it's a four-night, five-day trip. And so I'm, I'm trying something new this year. I've never done this. I bought a $12, almost $13 charger. It, it mounts on your handlebars. You put your phone in it and it's wired under the gas tank straight to the battery. I've never tried this before. I thought, you know what, maybe this will help my HTC M10 smartphone survive battery power all the way down. So I wire this up. Works great. Except what I normally do, I did, and that is I didn't read the instructions first. I don't know how many times, I'm 50 years old, when will I learn? And if I had read the instructions first, you're supposed to put a put the wire through this thing, through this holder, before you wire it into the battery, wire it to the battery. So I had to take it all back apart, rewire it the right way, and do it all over again. The instructions were key. Now, why I'm telling you that is this, and then we are going to get roaring through this message. What we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, is the absolute interpretive key for the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you do not get this, the power of the Sermon on the Mount will not get you. This is absolutely critical. And some of you are going to be done with this message and go, my goodness, my mind hurts but I think it's going to be a sweet ache. You've got to learn this. I can't possibly give you more of an encouragement and an admonition. You must get this if you are a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, you must understand this. This is absolutely critical that you do everything you can to learn and to listen to this message. So let's get moving on it. We've seen the character of a disciple. We've called them the Beatitudes. Then we saw the calling of the disciple to be salt and light to the world, to the earth. What we're going to be seeing starting next week is the conduct of a Christian, of a disciple of Jesus. But today we're going to look at the condition of a disciple. So we've seen the character, the calling. We're going to go now into the conduct next week, but today is the condition. What is the condition of a disciple of Jesus Christ? What sets us apart from the world? Let's look right at it. Page 810 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 5 in your regular Bible. Do not think, verse 17, do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the phrase, the law or the prophets, let's get this right out right away. This is absolutely important. It refers to the entire Old Testament. It's just a way of saying the Old Testament. Now, if you've got a Jewish friend that is not a Messianic Jew, that does not 
put their faith in Jesus, they don't buy the Old and New Testament language. They call what we call the Old Testament the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible or the Holy Scriptures. So if you have a Hebrew friend or a Jewish friend, that's what they mean by the Old Testament. What we're referring to by the Old Testament, Jesus says, the law or the prophets. Now, do you not find it curious? Now, you got to think a little bit on this. Look at how he phrases this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. That kind of tells you that there was a question in the minds of all those people listening to him. Is he going to do away with the Old Testament? That's what they're thinking. The, the Pharisees, they're listening carefully. They're eventually going to call him a lawbreaker and crucify him. They want to see if he's breaking the law. The people, the, the average Jewish person is anxiously listening to Jesus because the law had become oppressive to them. It had become a burden to them. Now, I want to take some time to tell you how difficult the law had become for the Jews. So here we go. You ready? This is all backdrop. The first century Jewish mind, when they heard the phrase, the law or the prophets, it stood for possibly four things. Here they are. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, we're all familiar with them. Or the first five books of the Bible, which were called the Pentateuch. The Jewish people called them the five roles. So either the Ten Commandments or the first five books of the Bible. Or thirdly, the entire Scripture, what we call the Old Testament, and finally, now this is critical, you ready? This is what the majority of them would have heard when they heard the law. The fourth was the oral or the scribal law. Now, in the time of Jesus, the, one, the, the last one, the, the scribal law, they had become the most common way that the word law was used. The Old Testament, it contains a great many broad principles. It doesn't really have a lot of specific rules. So if your mind is that the Old Testament is nothing but rules, you're really not reading it right. It's mostly principles. And to the scribes, which were experts in the law, they were Jewish lawyers, these broad principles, now listen, you've got to get this. This is going to help you understand everything. It's going to snap into clarity in a minute. To the scribe, the Jewish lawyers, these broad principles, well, they opened up way too many ways to break the commands. And that had caused so much suffering for the Jewish people, overrun, conquered by Assyria, overrun, conquered by the Babylonians, over and over, breaking God's law meant terrible results for the Jewish people. So the scribes said, well, listen, it's too easy to break these principles. We've got to build a fence around it. We've got to build a barrier so that people cannot go in and then change it to do anything they want. For example, one of the Ten Commandments that we're all familiar with was to keep the Sabbath holy, simply meaning don't do any work. You've got to keep that separate from the rest of the week. But what was work? We've, now they've got to define this, so the Jewish lawyers go to work. And they crafted rules to be able to explain that you couldn't carry or you could not function with any kind of a burden on the, on the Sabbath. But now, what is a burden? 
the question began to be hotly debated among the scribes. What actually does it mean to carry a burden? What is a burden? So now they've got to define what a burden was. And I'm going to quote to you what their definitions were. This is just a sampling, by the way. A burden, an acceptable burden, was, quote, food equal in weight to a dried fig, or enough wine for mixing in a goblet, or enough milk for one single swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small part of your body, water enough to moisten an eye salve, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, a reed enough to make one single pen. That's what they said was an acceptable burden to carry on a Sabbath day. Now, this is not the law of God. This is not what God laid out. He laid out principles. They're now creating rules called the oral law, the scribal law, to put a fence around it so nobody could break it. Healing on the Sabbath... Well, that was allowed only when a life was in danger or in case of your ear, nose, or throat. If you had a lot of pain, then you could treat a patient on the Sabbath only to get them through to Sunday. Sabbath was Saturday. You could not treat them to cure them. That would be carrying a burden and breaking the Sabbath. They debated endlessly whether a lamp in your home could be lifted and moved to a different part of the home, whether a clothing tailor who had a needle stuck in his cloak and went for a walk, whether he broke the Sabbath or not. These, I'm not making these up. This is what the law had become by the time of Jesus. It was thousands of rules and regulations. They said a bandage on the Sabbath could be put on a wound, but not if it was a medicated bandage. You couldn't put oil on the bandage. Now, these are only a few samples. There were literally thousands of rules for just how to keep the Sabbath, not to even mention the other nine of the Ten Commandments. And it all became the oral or scribal law. And it was never written down until the third century, a little after 200 AD, which was what was called the Mishnah. They finally wrote them all down. Before that, they were just taught word of mouth from one generation to another. But then they created and they compiled this Mishnah two centuries after Christ. But now watch what happens. The Mishnah, all of these oral commands that I just explained a little bit of them to you, that Mishnah now required commentaries on it. And so all these scribes are writing their own viewpoints, their own interpretations on the Mishnah, which was not even the law of God. Now here's the point. The oral law reduced the law of God to a legalistic system of external righteousness. If you can keep these rules, then you are righteous before God. You are right before God. And even worse, it was eventually the, the oral law. Now listen, this is the most heinous part of this. The oral law, that fence that they built around the word of God, that oral law became a fence, a forest so deep, so thick, that people weren't even really studying. The average person no longer was even interested in the written word of God. It was all about the oral law. The oral law became more authoritative than God's 
word. Now, do you see what's happening? This is why Jesus, the entire gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do this, but in particular, Matthew, he keeps attacking the traditions, the oral law of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was no longer the living and active word of God. It was a man-made system of religion. And it was all on the shoulders of the people, and it was grinding them to nothing. Now, when I was young, I had chores just like all kids and all teenagers do. And one of the chores that I had was to go get the water. And that makes sense when I tell you that our home was the first home built out of town. So we didn't have city water. The very house next to us had city water. My dad built the home that I grew up in. He built it up on a hill, unbeknownst to any of us, on top of a sulfur water table. So all my life I grew up with sulfur water smells like rotten eggs. So to drink water, to have water to drink, it was my job to take two six-gallon jugs down the hill to my neighbor about 125 yards away, fill up on his outside spigot, and then bring it all the way back up. Now what I began to, I thought, wisely do, my father caught me, is that I learned pretty quickly if you don't fill those jugs up all the way, they're not as heavy. It's not as difficult to walk them back up 125 yards of a hill back to the house. So I kept bringing it down more and more. I kept reducing the water level, making it easier to manage until my father pointed out, you know, you are going down twice as, long, twice as many times. Then I began to wise up and realize, you know what, it's smarter and wiser to do it the right way. Now, that is, in effect, what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were reducing the law of God to something that they could manage to try to keep. But when they reduced it, they distorted it completely out of what God had wanted. The law of God became a joyless duty rather than a guide to a life of joy, love, and meaning. So let me ask you, when you think about the Bible, what's your opinion of it? Uh, my parents, or my pastor, my Bible study leader says, you got to be in this, you got to be in it, you got to be reading it. It becomes a joyless duty after a while. You really don't want to do it. Your heart's not really in it. Until all of a sudden you realize this is what gives you joy. This is what guides you to the person of Jesus. This is what gives your life purpose. And the very moment that that dawning realization settles into your soul and you go back to the Word of God, Old Testament or New, now all of a sudden it comes alive. Now all of a sudden, I can't wait to get back in the Word of God. Where before it was joyless, it was a duty, now it's a love of my life. It certainly was for David. He loved the Word of God, wrote an entire and the longest psalm of the Bible all about the Word of God, but for five to seven verses in it. The law of God had become a joyless duty to the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, and it wasn't a guide to a life of joy, love, and meaning. So he challenged them in Matthew chapter 15, 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
Why do you not any longer love my word for the sake of your oral fence, your man-made legalistic religious system? And the people so oppressed by this oral law, they're listening. Now listen, you've got to imagine this. You're on that sermon on the mount. You're, you're on that mount when Jesus is preaching and, and he's talking about, I didn't come. And he starts talking about the, the law. What's he going to do with the law? And your mind's going, wait a minute, I hope, I hope it's going to get light. Well, look what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, our Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And all of a sudden, your Jewish heart is just deflating. It's just going to get worse than it even already is. Well, let's climb into it. What's abolish mean? It means to nullify. You got to learn this. If I were you, I would write this in your Bibles. Write it, underline it, put it out in the margin. The word abolish means to nullify, repeal, or destroy. Jesus says, I did not come to repeal the law. I did not come to destroy. I didn't come to nullify it. But yet there's a lot of people today who are Christians or say that they're Christians and who believe that the Old Testament has no relevance to them. It's just a historical book. It's non-binding. It's just there for illustration. But Jesus couldn't be clear. He says it twice. I'm not come. I'm not nullifying the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So what's fulfill mean? Well, in the Greek language, it's a very beautiful word. It doesn't mean to fill out, but to fill up. It doesn't mean to add to, but to complete. In short, it means to accomplish. I came to accomplish the law and the prophets. In his sermon, or this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see this as we keep working through it. Jesus often says, you have heard that it was said. Listen, when you read that, know that he's talking about the oral scribal fence around the Torah law, the man-made system. You have heard that it was said, and he's referencing that. And then he says, but I say to you, do you know what he's doing? This is beautiful. He's restoring, he's completing, he's clarifying the original purpose of the law. This is why God gave it to you. This is why Moses brought it down from the mountain. Here's what it was really meant to say. He's fulfilling the Old Testament, which was all along about him. It was pointing to Jesus. It was promising that he, the Messiah, the, the mediator, the redeemer would come. This is why he says in John 5, 39, incredible verse. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I'm the one that gives eternal life. You're not going to find eternal life by holding rules. See, he perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about him. He fulfilled all the demands of the law and perfect obedience. He even fulfilled the penalty for our sin. See, he came to fill up. He came to complete the entire law and the prophets. And we need to see what that really means. So I want you to really, now what I've done so far, I hope, is give you some contextual background. 
kind of color it for you a little bit. Now we're going to do something that might elicit a little bit of a soul groan to you, but you got to let it not. You've got to buckle down. You've got to discipline, ready? You've got to know the truth. This church must be a people that know the truth. Amen? Righteousness, righteousness is simply being made like Jesus. Righteousness cannot come by an external conformity to God's law, but by God's law leading us to Jesus. And that's the main purpose. Who can make us righteous? It's Jesus. He gives us a new heart. He makes us alive to God. The very moment you surrender, the very moment you trust Jesus, the moment that you yield to him, you place your life in his hands, you believe that he died for you, that very moment you do that, he makes you righteous. He gives you a new heart. The Spirit of God comes and dwells inside and begins to power you to live in a way that is obedient to the law. And the Lord your God, Deuteronomy said, will circumcise your heart. Listen, I don't know what you're thinking when you read the word circumcise, probably all kinds of shuddery thoughts. It just means to cut away the flesh. So here's what it means. And the Lord your God will cut away the flesh, the old unredeemed part of your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord. He's going to do this work so that we can love him so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that you may live. See, the law and the prophets, that's the entire Old Testament, its intention always has been to lead people to Jesus, the Savior. And the power of the law continues to operate in the same way today. And look what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, I don't know if you know what these words iota and dot mean. They mean a lot in the Greek language. They mean a lot in the original language. It means really the very smallest part. That's what an iota was no bigger. Picture an apostrophe. Picture an apostrophe, that's the size of an iota. Picture a dot when you dot your I. That's literally the size of a dot. And look what he says, truly, for truly I say to you, that's the word amen. It's transliterated. All that means, that's a fancy word to mean that that's how it looks in the Hebrew language as well. A-M-E-N. They kept it the same way when they brought it into the English, which appears the same. Amen means that this statement is absolutely true and reliable. Normally, the Jewish people said amen at the end of their sentences, like we do. Jesus introduced a revolutionary concept. He's really the first one that did this. He brought amen to the beginning. Why? It, well, it's kind of similar when I do this. Now, listen. Now all your heads napped up. That's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely reliable. It is absolutely true. And you can hang your soul on it. And he says this, truly, 
until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot, two smallest parts of the language will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, not one part of the law will pass away until all is accomplished, meaning the entire redemptive plan of God. Don't you remember that plan? He starts with creation. Adam and Eve bring sin. Sin saturates every square inch of creation. So you've got creation, you've got the fall, and then you've got God on a rescue mission called redemption. And now he's going to bring back the consummation of the kingdom. So it goes creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're going to get to the end where Jesus comes back and he brings his kingdom in full. Right now the kingdom is emerging. Right now the kingdom is becoming more clear. And the church is the focal point of that kingdom. And he came to fulfill all the law, all the Old Testament, all of it points to Jesus. Second Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's why it was through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now I'm getting you to think, I'm telling you this is the key this is the interpretive key to the entire sermon, and I haven't really yet gotten to the key, but I'm about to. Hang in there. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, for whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, to understand what Jesus meant by the least of these commandments, it helps to begin distinguishing three parts to God's law. Three parts to God's law. So let me give you this. And this is the part where you've got to really hang on. This is the part where you chew. You're not getting milk today. You're getting meat. And you've got to chew on this to grow in your Christian faith. It seems utterly clear that the entire law could be divided into three parts. Here they are. The first one's the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments and all of their interpretive teachings in Deuteronomy. It's all those teachings that are repeated and extrapolated or, or commented on even in the New Testament. Jesus obeyed the moral law completely. He expects you and he expects me to do the same. Did you know that? Did you know, Christian, that Jesus expects you to obey the entire moral law? I mean, just think about it. One of them is do not murder. It's not okay to murder now. Another one is do not reduce God and worship an idol. It's not okay to do that now. The entire moral law is still in effect. We must obey it. But there's a second aspect of the law. It's called the ceremonial law. You know what I'm talking about, right? All those sacrifices, all of those special days and festivals. Can't get tattoos. All of these things. Can't eat bacon. Probably can't eat much of anything that the teens are about to eat at the close of this 30-hour famine. <laughs> but the ceremonial laws were, Colossians says, a shadow of the things to come. Listen, when the sun rises, the shadow disappears. The sun, Jesus, the Son of God, when he comes, the shadow will disappear. One of the shadows was the ceremonial law, but there was another one. 
And it's the third aspect of the law. It's called the civil law. Now, you're hanging into this, teens. You got to get this too. There is the moral law. There is the civil law. There is the ceremonial law. The civil law is what God gave to Israel specifically in order for them to govern themselves. The civil law were laws specific to Israel, such things like the cities of refuge. You must have two or three or more witnesses in order to pronounce a sentence. Stoning for certain offenses, all of that was bound up in the civil law, the portion of the law. Now, I want you to hear this. This is critical. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. The civil law was unique to Israel. What remains today is the moral law. The aspect of the law that endures for us, Christian brother and sister, is the moral law. Now listen, it was once written on enduring stone tablets. Now, Ezekiel says, and Jeremiah reverberates, it's going to be written on your heart. And this is why it always was, by the way, this is why the Gentiles who do not have the law have it written on their heart, according to Romans. The moral law undergirded all of the law, all of the civil, all of the ceremonial was built on top of the moral law. Because the moral law reveals the character and the will of God. Now, if you haven't heard much else as I've been telling you what the law means, here's the part you grab hold of. The moral law reveals the character and the will of God. And Jesus warns, you cannot relax even a part of the moral law. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees had done. You know how they had done it? They found 613 laws in the Old Testament, particularly the first five books. And what they had done was they, they, they divided those 613 to have 248 positive laws of what God wants you to do, and then 365 negative laws of what he doesn't want you to do. And then they divided these into heavy and weighty laws and then lighter walls, uh, laws. The heavy ones were binding. You have to do it. Whereas they believed the lighter laws were not binding. If you don't get around to it, it's not so bad. This is what happened at the time of Jesus. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, just herbs, and have neglected the weightier, he's, he's addressing these weighty laws that they had, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's these you should have done without neglecting the others. He's not letting them off the hook for any of them, but he's saying, listen, not all laws are created equal. Yeah, there are weightier ones and there are lighter ones, but you're completely flipping it because you can't control justice because you don't want to give it. You'd rather take a blade and hive off tenth of your dill and take it to the temple as your tithe. 
They were scrupulous, the Pharisees were, about the letter of the law, but they had let go of the spirit of the law, which was love. Romans 13, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The entire law could be summed up. You got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But they wouldn't do it. So now we get to the interpretive key, verse 20. This is everything. Why I am emphasizing this so much is you're going to see, Lord willing, starting next week, six examples of exactly what he writes in verse 20, which is this. For I tell you, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what the modern Jewish perspective is on righteousness? It's no different virtually than that of the Jews in Jesus' day. I'm going to quote it to you. This is a modern Jewish perspective. He writes this, We children of Israel are righteous. For the Torah... The Old Testament says so. Of course, we must uphold the Torah, or otherwise we might cease to be righteous. But as long as we keep the Torah, we are righteous. In Judaism, that's the religion of the Jews, it is entirely up to you. If you do good, you will get good. This is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees believed. Because we're the chosen people of God, we already are righteous. We have intrinsic, internal, by choice righteousness. Therefore, we don't obey the law to become righteous. We obey the law to keep and maintain our righteousness. That was their mindset. Therefore, they demanded, you've got to be obedient to the oral law, all of our thousands of rules, if you want to be continuing in your righteousness. Now, can you imagine the average person? That would be us. I wouldn't probably even be considered a scribe or a Pharisee. There's no way I'm educated enough. So this is us. Can you imagine that we believe there's thousands of rules that if you want to go to heaven, you want to be righteous, you've got to maintain and keep all of these thousands of rules. Can you imagine how much you would hate coming to church? How much you would be repulsed by reading the Bible? Why would God demand this? Who can possibly do this? The purpose of the law and the prophets, listen, was to lead a sinner to Jesus to be made righteous. The law was a mirror. And I want you to remember this. The law is a mirror. And it reflects for us the character, the holy perfection, the love, the mercy of God. But then that law goes like this. And all of a sudden, you're the one that's lit up. You're the one that's reflecting back. And you don't look so good. I don't look so good next to God's perfection. 
And all of a sudden, a gap appears between God's holiness and my sinfulness. And what's going to bridge the gap? The scribe said, well, here's how you bridge the gap. Here's thousands of rules for you. And if you can maintain them, then you can become holy like God. But God says, good luck. You're never going to be able to do it. And they knew it too. They kept trying to reduce it. The point was of the law to show you the gap that you can't bridge it, but somebody can, and his name is Jesus. And the cross bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Remember that wealthy young man of Matthew 19 who thought he had kept all the law? Do you remember that, right? He, was, he thought he was righteous because he had reduced the law to an external legalistic form. But then Jesus says, all right, one more thing you got to do. Here's the spirit of the law. You got the letter down. Here's the spirit. Go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Now, it's not that selling your possessions and giving them to the poor earns you righteousness. What he's doing is he's showing him, here's what the spirit of the law looks like. It looks like love, and you actually do something for the poor. You do something to bring justice. And if you're not even willing to do that, then how can you possibly think you're righteous? And the young man went away sorrowful. And you know what the disciples said? They all said, who then can be saved? And all the multitude listening to this sermon would have been saying the same. Listen, if the scribes and the Pharisees, these icons of religious purity, if they're not righteous enough to get to heaven, then who on earth can be? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, keeping the law cannot justify, cannot make you righteous, cannot make you right with God, just trying to be obedient, trying to be a good person, trying to memorize scripture, trying to do everything the church says you should do. That won't make you righteous. It has no power to make you righteous. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, Romans says. The law simply shows how sinful we are. That's Romans 3.20. The law reveals that God is holy, that we are sinful. Nothing you do can change that. The law, you know what it does? Now listen, y'all got a check-in count? Maybe a lot of you do. I'll use that imagery. Maybe this will help a little bit make sense. The law gets online to your spiritual bank account and clicks on it and shows you on that big screen laptop, you not only have no moral credit, you are unfathomably in debt. There is no way you will ever reconcile that. That's what the law shows you. You are in a debt you can never repay. And it's all spiritual because you, like me, have sinned. But you might say, well, how can I go to heaven? I'm not even a Jewish person. How would I know this? I've never read the Old Testament law. The Bible says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So listen, every one of us has the law written on our hearts. That's why you feel guilty. 
That's why you were feeling guilty before you ever became a Christian. The law was on your heart, and it was showing you, you just created more debt. See, salvation has never been by obeying the law of God. It is a gracious act of God. Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, Paul writes. So how do you become righteous? And this is how I'm going to end. This is absolutely the most important part of the message. You ready? Don't tune out. The moral law of God, Ten Commandments with all of their extrapolations. The moral law of of God is the standard of God's holy perfection and his perfect will for all of us. It is written on every one of our hearts and it bears witness. Listen, it bears witness that you, like me, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it moves us to cry, Uncle to tap out because the law has got us in a chokehold that you cannot get out of. And you tap out and you turn to Jesus in helpless surrender, the only one who has ever been able to keep the law perfectly, the one of whom the entire law was pointing to all along. And when you believe in Jesus, when you trust that he will save you, when you yield and you surrender your life to him, you give up trying to be righteous on your own, you claim the righteousness that Jesus promises, and you come under his commands, is at that precise moment of your faith in Jesus that he wipes out all of that spiritual debt that the law clicked on and showed you that you've got. He wipes it completely out. And he streams into your soul's account unlimited righteousness. And it's streaming. It's not an amount that hopefully you're not going to liquidate before you go to, before you die. It is streaming in you endlessly, a righteousness that is perfect and you can never exhaust it. And he gives you a new heart. And he sends his helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in that heart. And and the Spirit of God helps you to love God, helps you to love other people, helps you now to obey the moral law. Because guess what? Jesus still demands that we obey the law. But now he says, I'm going to give you a heart and the helper to do it. But you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to want according to his good purpose. Christian, if you've slacked, if you have thought, well, I'm under grace, it's no big deal if I obey or not. Yeah, I know I should, and I'm going to feel bad. It's not that big of a deal. Are you kidding? It is a massive deal. The requirements are on us to live the law, but he's given us a heart and the helper and the passion and the desire to do it. That's the work of the gospel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, Jesus wrote. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. So here's what we learn. 
Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the law, completing all of it, even its penalties of death for sin, in our place as our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. And what remains of the law is the moral law, every single part of it, and we must live it as the disciples of Christ. And it cannot be relaxed, and you cannot teach that it's no longer important, for it is. And if you teach it, and if you relax it, your reward in heaven will be small. If you keep it and you teach it, it will be great. Because the power of God is helping you. Because Christian, Jesus has given you a new heart with new desires and the power of the Spirit himself to live out the moral law. Amen?